That psalm is a cry from the midst of the warfare in which God's people have lived since Eden. A recognition that the wicked prowl and seek the downfall of God's people because they can't reach God himself. And so the the godly call out for help to the Lord, recognizing that they are no match for the wicked in and of themselves, but recognizing too that God is both good and sovereign. And that he will bring about justice for his people. We see really that warfare in our text for this morning. We're going to look at Exodus 5 verses 1 through 9. uh, Which is a recollection of the first encounter Moses and Aaron have with Pharaoh. That we can see the context of that. We'll start reading at verse 27 of the preceding chapter. And then we're going to read through verse 21, so we can see that whole section. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves." But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. They shall, you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. 
That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Then they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. Because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Amen. Beloved people of God in Christ, this passage in Exodus marks the start of a battle, a decisive battle in the cosmic war which rages around us throughout our time in this world. The war itself, as I said, began in Eden, where Satan sought to take what belongs to God. And our God responded with a vow that he would destroy Satan by means of a son born of the line of the woman Eve. Today that promised son has come. His decisive victory has been won. Today we await only the final application, the final revealing of the victory he has accomplished. However, until that great day of revealing, the battle will continue. And so in that sense, even though the victory has been secured, our situation isn't that much different than that which confronted Israel in Egypt. Because although the victory has now been won through Christ, the battle is still raging. The triumph hasn't yet been revealed and the enemy still proudly boasts his supposed superiority over us and over our God. And Satan will never willingly confess his defeat. And so for that reason, this passage is a source of great comfort for us. Though we live in a different age, both theologically and practically, Our situation looks very similar and we need the comfort of understanding that situation in the light of God's sovereignty and in the light of the significance of the battle that we see. It's easy to grow discouraged. It's easy to focus on our sin and our weakness and thereby to despair of our victory. It's easy to see how attractive are the tempter's traps and how many are his servants. It's easy to become overwhelmed at the forces against us and at their apparent strength. It's easy for us to be paralyzed and to turn to inaction. But we must not. We must not because the victory is ours and the God whom we serve, the God who is our King, is infinitely greater than the God of this world who has already been defeated. That's what we see in this passage. We see that this is a war that we should expect. It's a war that the enemy will not give up lightly. But it's a war that we can fight with confidence. And so in this text, in this text we see that the Lord begins a battle against the false gods of Egypt. It's a battle that begins in every land where his people are found. 
This passage marks the start of the battle. Now, of course, there's been warfare going on there. As a previous Pharaoh even sought to wage war against the children of God's people. But this is a new level, a new significance, a new openness to that battle as the Lord begins, declares that battle against the false gods of Egypt. And the first thing we see as we enter this text is how the Lord, by the mouth of His prophets, requires release of His priestly people. Notice how our text begins, afterward. God wants us to remember what came before this confrontation with Pharaoh. After Aaron had met Moses in the wilderness at the command of God. After they had gathered together the elders of the people and told them all the things that God had told Moses to convey and shown them the signs that God had given them to show. And notice how the people responded. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. They were encouraged. This is our God. This is our calling from God. Praise the Lord. They're eager. They're ready. They're like God's people at worship, right? Encouraged to be what they're called to be and to do what they're called to do. But then, afterward, Moses and Aaron go and they confront See, we we can't see that confrontation without recognizing the context, without remembering why Moses and Aaron are going to Pharaoh. If we just start at verse 1 without that afterward, what we see are freedom fighters. We see Moses and Aaron fighting against the evil of slavery, fighting against the evil of oppression, fighting against the the forces of power on behalf of the oppressed. But that's not really what this is. Slavery is evil. But this isn't the only case of slavery in history, as we well know. In fact, there's more human slavery today than there was when it was legal in this country. Slavery is something that will continue throughout this fallen world. The reason they were confronting Pharaoh wasn't simply because of slavery, it was because of who those slaves were and the spiritual significance of that slavery. This was the people of God who were being enslaved and they were being enslaved in such a way as to prevent them from worshiping and glorifying and serving the Lord. This was the people who were called, as we will see later in Exodus, to be God's priestly people throughout the world. The people who were called to proclaim and to reveal the glory of God before all the world. This was the people who were the descendants of Abraham, to whom God promised, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's who Israel was. They were the ones whom God promised in Genesis 17. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. This was who was 
being oppressed, being enslaved, being brought low. And that's why Moses and Aaron had to come against Pharaoh. Because he was enslaving, because he was abusing the people whom God had chosen as his own. And that was a direct affront against God himself. And so they come to Pharaoh, but they don't come as community organizers or as speakers on behalf of the oppressed. What's the first words out of their mouth? Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Kids, you notice that Lord, the word Lord is all in capital. That's the way most of our English Bible translations render the divine name, Yahweh, or sometimes Jehovah. That's a name given to God by himself. It's a name given to no other God. A lot of the other words that we find for God, El or Elohim, Adonai, those are words that could apply to other false gods or even men who had great power. But Yahweh was given to none but the true God. And it's the word that means He is. This is the God who eternally is. The God who always has been. When there was no one else, when there was nothing else, He existed and brought forth everything by His will, by His power, by His decree. This is the God who depends on no one but Himself, the source of the existence of all things, including Israel, including Pharaoh and his people. This is the God who claimed Israel as His own, and it was on behalf of this God that Moses and Aaron came to speak, issuing a demand that was not theirs and that was not Israel's, but that belonged to the God of heaven and earth, who was requiring the release of His people. Not surprisingly... Pharaoh rejects their command, which is just what God said that he would do. But notice how Moses and Aaron respond to Pharaoh's rejection in verse 3. Pharaoh denied that God existed. Who is this Lord? Who is this Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know him. And I will not let Israel go. And so how do they respond? First they assure him that this God does exist. The, Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. We've spoken with him. We've seen his power. We know that he exists. Pharaoh's denial of God's existence doesn't negate his reality and doesn't negate his commands. The spokesmen of the Lord testify, He is real, we know it. And then they reiterate His command. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. They not only assure Him that God exists, but they reiterate His command. Because whether men acknowledge Him or not, He is sovereign, He is the King, and His word is authoritative. In fact, they warn, if we don't go, if we don't obey His command, if we don't worship this God, pestilence and the sword will come upon us. Pestilence, that means sickness or disease. 
God is able to use illness. God is able to use warfare. God is able to use anything in this world as an instrument in His hand to reveal both His blessing and His curse. And for those who reject Him, it will be His curse. This is a beautiful lesson for us because we live in a culture that increasingly denies the existence of God. Social media is absolutely filled with it nowadays. Scorning of the claims of the true God. Mockery of His divine word. Videos of people testifying to their scorn for the churches and the truth in which they were raised. Leaders of our nation and of our state who make light of, make mockery of the prayers of God's people and the worship that they bring. But their denial of the existence of the living God and their rejection of His commands do not negate His reality or His sovereignty. And we need to remember that. Young people, Should the Lord call you to go to an institution of higher learning and you hear professors scorning the reality of the living God or even you go to a Christian university and you hear them mocking the truth of God's word and mocking those who believe that God actually created the world in six days or that God actually flooded the whole world as they're mocking at Calvin, as they're mocking at Dort. You remember that their mockery doesn't negate the truth of that word or the reality of our God. And when the people around you refuse to worship, when the people around you utterly ignore and overturn God's word, don't you forget, He's still sovereign. He still holds sway over us and those who reject Him, those who refuse to worship Him, whether by pestilence or by sword or by the eventual judgment when we all stand before Christ, they will answer for their rebellion. God requires the release of His priestly people. He requires the worship of His priestly people. And in His response, Pharaoh reveals His rebellion. That's our second point. The rebellion of Egypt's idolatrous king. Look at Pharaoh's first response in verse 2. Again, initially he poses a question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? At the very least, this tells us that Pharaoh has no knowledge, no living knowledge of the true God. And objectively, from Pharaoh's point of view, we can kind of understand that, right? I mean, from the word go, Pharaoh has been schooled, he has been catechized in the pantheon of God served by ancient Egypt. He has been told that there are all sorts of gods, not just one, all sorts of gods. And as Pharaoh, he has been taught that he is the living embodiment of the chief god of Egypt. So not only does he deny... Yahweh, the true God, but he believes that their claim 
that there is a different God and that that God can command him, Pharaoh, well, that's an affront. That is, a, that is an offense to Pharaoh. Why, from his logic, why, even if this God exists, why should I heed him? After all, he's the God of a bunch of slaves. If he was any powerhouse, well, surely he would deliver his people from my grasp. Little did he know what was coming. And so he rejects this God and rejects his commands. And he openly dismisses God's sovereignty. Verses 4 and 5, Pharaoh emphasizes in these verses. He's the one in charge of Egypt. He's the one who has authority over Israel. And he doesn't believe that Israel can do anything more important, more valuable, more worthy than serving Pharaoh at his will. You see, this is a clash. Not between Moses and Aaron, the spokesman. Moses and Aaron, the community organizers. And Pharaoh, the symbol of all, all that is powerful in Egypt. It's not that. It's a clash between Yahweh, the true and living God, and all of the false gods of Egypt. In fact, all of the false gods of the world. That is what we see here. A couple important details that show that. In verse 5, he speaks to Moses and Aaron. He says, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The word rendered rest is the Hebrew word Shabbat, from which we get the word Sabbath. God was commanding them to rest from their labors. Because one cannot labor in the things of the world and devote oneself wholeheartedly to worship as, as one ought. That's why from the start he has given one day out of seven as a Sabbath, as a day of rest. That we might set aside the labors that normally consume us and focus ourselves wholeheartedly upon the worship of God. That's what God was commanding Israel and that's what Pharaoh was explicitly rejecting, denying, refusing them. You will not rest, you will not worship, you will work for me. You will be my slaves, you will be my servants. Again, it's a clash of religions, a clash of gods. We see it even more clearly at the very start of what Moses and Aaron say. And then later at what Pharaoh says. Moses and Aaron come and say, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel... Verse 10, Pharaoh gathers the taskmasters and foremen and says, Thus says Pharaoh. They speak on behalf of the true and living God. He speaks on behalf of the chief God of Egypt. It's a clash of gods. It's always a clash of gods. You understand that? All of the tension, all of the fighting, all of the... Division that we see in our land. It's not just a difference of opinion. People say, well, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just dialogue? The reason we used to be able to dialogue in this country is because we all had the same foundation. Amos 3 says, how can 
two walk together unless they are agreed. We used to be able to agree. We would differ on minor points. But we understood that God's word is the foundation of all truth. We understood that there was an unchanging and universal truth that was true for all men. A standard of righteousness and justice that was righteous and justice for all humanity. Because we had, if not a shared faith, at least a shared worldview, a shared recognition that God exists, that He made it all, that His word is determinative. That's gone. The reason we as a nation, we as a culture are so divided is because we serve different gods. Some serve Yahweh, some serve Pharaoh. We've always seen that. Think of the evil dictators who have caused so much upheaval and destruction in the history of mankind. Men like Nero, Domitian in the ancient Roman world, or more recently Hitler and Saddam. These were men who regarded themselves as gods, who served false gods, who rejected the true God. Think of the founders of false religions like Mohammed and Joseph Smith. They explicitly rejected the true God. That's why they caused such strife, such damage. And we see it today. When our government refuses to acknowledge the true God, it doesn't opt for nothing. It opts for man as God. When our state schools say that the Bible is not welcome in the classroom, that the Bible is not well, they're not, they're not striving for nothing. That's impossible. It's impossible to rid the classroom or any realm of life from religion. They're just replacing the true religion, the true God, and putting man on the throne. Or putting particular men on the throne. Maybe Marx, maybe Kant, maybe Stalin. Take your pick. But it's God or man. It's God or a false God. That's the nature of the fight against us. The worship of idols or the worship of a true God. There's only two choices. Either we will serve Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God who made us and sustains us every moment, or we will serve someone or something else which always devolves into the power of man. There's no other option, just those two. Well, Pharaoh has made his choice, but he doesn't stop there. Because that rebellion of rejecting the living God, it always shows itself. Starting in verse C, we see how he responds as God's prophets fall silent. Pharaoh's words and answers in verses 6 and following are a direct answer to God's command concerning Israel. God has said, you will give my people rest. You will let them go that they might worship me. You will allow them to acknowledge me as the true and living God who made them and whom they serve. And everything Pharaoh does is to reject that. So our final point, this all prompts retaliation against God's afflicted servants. Consider what Pharaoh orders in these verses. Much of Israel's slave labor involved bricks, right? Making bricks, transporting bricks, 
building with bricks. It wasn't exactly rocket science. Bricks were, and in some places today are, made the same way. Right? You take clay, you take water, you mix them together, you form them, you bake them. Egypt had a problem that they didn't have much wood to spare. So they didn't bake the bricks in a kiln, which is ideal, but they baked them in the sun. They formed them, they set them out in the sun to dry, but that uh, tends to make the bricks kind of crumbly. So you need a binding agent, which is what the straw was for. It kind of served the same way that rebar does in our concrete projects today, a miniature version of it. That was their job, was to make bricks. But now Pharaoh orders that straw not be provided to the Israelites. They still needed to use it. The bricks wouldn't work without it. But until now, the straw was provided, either by the Egyptians or by some other slave labor. Providing that straw was not a small job. Even if it just meant going out to get it, you've got to go find it. You've got to haul it back to the place where you're making the bricks. That takes a bunch of labor. It takes a bunch of time. So Pharaoh's adding a significant burden to their workload, but then he says, the quota shall not decrease. You see, when you have a people that are working for profit, you don't have to give them a quota. The profit motive is enough to keep them working diligently. But when you have slaves, well, then you have to impose a quota with punishments if they don't meet that quota. And so Pharaoh says, the quota shall not decrease. I'm going to add to the work, but you have to make the same number of bricks. Why? What was Pharaoh's reason for so increasing the burden? Well, explicitly, he tells them, I'm subduing you. Verse 8, they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. In other words, Pharaoh's claiming that they're desiring time off because they're bored. And he wants that idea to hurt. That idea that they, could, that they have the, the ability, that they have the right to cry out for rest, he wants that to hurt. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. He wants the world to know that he regards Yahweh as a lie, that he regards the claims of Moses and Aaron as a fabrication, that he does not acknowledge the God of the Hebrews, nor will he, and anyone who dares to do so will find themselves buried in work. That's his reason on the surface. But that's not the real reason. It's not the heart of the reason that he lays on more of their burden. The heart of the reason is that he hates the true God. Later in this book, he acknowledges the reality of Yahweh. But even that doesn't stop him. He's going to die at the hand of the living God because he will not refuse his rebellion. He will not turn away from his rebellion. You see, every person, Romans 1 tells us, every person knows in their hearts and sees from the creation that the Lord our God exists and is to be worshipped. And that offends the heart of those who reject him. Pharaoh claims that the Lord's words are a lie, just like our society does today. But you know what? It's a, that's a lie. 
Because if you believe someone, if you actually believe that someone is believing a lie, you might feel compassion for them. You might want to correct them for their own well-being. But you won't get impassioned about it. You won't get absolutely filled with fervor to seek to stamp out that lie. Because it doesn't really affect you. Our culture doesn't attack Mormonism. Our culture doesn't attack scientism. Our culture doesn't attack Islam. Why? Because they know those are lies. They know they're false. Therefore, they're not really a threat. But Christianity, they will attack with fervor. Christianity, the Bible, the truth of the living God, that they will attack and attack and attack some more because that's the one that afflicts their conscience. That's the one they know is true. Pharaoh will pursue this battle until it destroys his nation and then ultimately destroys him. So will our world. So will our world. Because the alternative is bowing the knee and worshiping alongside the church. There's only two choices. And unless the Lord softens their heart, unless he brings them to life from the midst of the dead, they will not. But let us never forget, the battle is won. Satan will retaliate. His servants will fight to silence us in every age, but they have already lost the war. And therefore, no matter what they do, we can stand confident. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And even if they take our very lives, all they've managed to do is usher us into the presence of our Father who loves us and Christ who has saved us. They can't win. And so with Moses and Aaron, we can stand fearlessly before them and say, Thus says the Lord, not hating them, not despising them, but compassionate toward them, loving them, longing to see them turn, and confident that Yahweh, the living God, has won the war, that all is ended, and that we are victorious in Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, You are indeed the true and living God. And we praise you for revealing yourself to us and so working within us that we would be able to be humbled and to acknowledge that you are the only true God. Enable us to stand confidently before you, not doubting that you are victorious, not doubting that you are the only true God. And Lord, we pray that you would make us to be effective as your spokesman. That through word and through deed, others might encounter you as they encounter us. And we pray that many, rather than rebelling as Pharaoh did, would ask us the reason for the hope within us. But regardless of whether they seek our hope or seek to silence us, enable your people to stand confidently before you. We ask it in the name of Jesus, who has won the victory. Amen.